Happy Mother's Day to uh, all of you mothers out there. I'm sorry I don't have a Mother's Day message for you. No, I'm not sorry, actually. I I think this is going to be better. Mothers are great, but heaven is better. And so uh, let's uh, put our focus on that. This is part six, and this is uh, in particular a focus on the hope that we have that awaits us in heaven. This past week, uh, I was in a, a, at a doctor's office, and the receptionist greeted me, and, and she came up with that question that I hear often, uh, and that is, are you related to Danny? And, and, and that always catches me off guard because I am. Uh, I am related to my brother, Danny, with D-E-F-F-I-N-B-A-U-G-H. Uh, I am not related to Danny, the FBI agent, D-E-F-E-N-B-A-U-G-H. Don't know him, never met him, but it's really my brother Danny that I, uh, that I owe a debt to as I come to this message. The last time we were in Washington State, he was telling me that there are some texts, there are some subjects where you just feel like you haven't got your arms all the way around it. And he said, that's the way I feel about John chapter 14. Something about that just isn't quite on target. And, and, and he said, I'm struggling to figure out what it is about that text that, that I don't understand and, and why I feel a little uneasy about the, the, the basic understanding of that text. So that will be, in effect, that will be the key text, but it will also uh, come out of our, our, our passages in John chapter 1. We talked about heaven, and we're doing it in the sense of progressive, progressive revelation. So we talked about heaven in the Garden of Eden. Then we talked last week about heaven in the tabernacle and in the temple. And this week we'll talk about heaven come down. That is, God present with us in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, during his uh, earthly life and ministry and his presence that remains among us because of his spirit. Now, I've made some decisions about how I'm going to handle the, the subject of, of uh, our hope in heaven. And, and basically, I guess I'm saying to myself, and I'm just confessing to you, that what I'm saying is stay focused. It is really easy to get off target when it comes to the subject of heaven. And so that means to me, stay focused on what lasts forever. Now think about this with me for a minute. If what is important is what lasts forever, and and and, and so if you take this, this spectrum, which obviously there is no, it's infinity and no beginning and no end, but if you take this spectrum... And here we are as evangelicals, and we're spending volumes and volumes in our books about the difference of three years or three and a half years between pre- and mid-trip. Three and a half years, folks, out of eternity, and we're spending most of our time talking about that. And and then there are others who are going to talk about premillennial versus amillennial. Okay, that's a thousand years. In the grand sweep of things, that's nothing. So what I'm saying is this. I'm going to talk about the eternal state. That's where I'm really locking in. More than the process of how we get there, I'm talking about what it'll be like when we get there. 
And also, if you think about it, amongst evangelicals, the subject of the eternal state is really that which we most agree upon. So I'm not going to get off in the Thule's about all of these things that evangelicals disagree about. And I'm not saying they're unimportant. I'm saying when compared to all of time and eternity, I don't think that we ought to get distracted from that by going down some of the bypath meadows. And trust me, I'm very capable of going down into the Thule's quickly. So let's talk about the incarnation. Heaven came down. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, you remember that the angel has come to Joseph and he is talking to Joseph about that child that is in Mary's womb. And he says that that child is to be named Emmanuel, which means God with us. And and then you see texts like Philippians chapter 2, which we know well, 5 through 8, on the incarnation, the kenosis of our Lord, where he didn't feel that those prerogatives and privileges that were his in heaven were something to cling to, but but he came down and dwelt amongst us and and took the road which led to the death uh, on behalf uh, of, of those who were sinners. And then the text in John chapter 1. It's clear from verses 1 through 3 that our Lord Jesus is God, that he was there before creation, that he was there as the agent of creation. But it's in verse 14 that I really want to plant my tent peg, if I can, for a minute, because it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. New American Standard Version has a footnote. I don't know if other versions, how many other versions have a footnote at this point? or say something like, literally in the Greek text, tabernacled amongst us. And the reason I like this is because last week we talked about the tabernacle as the place where men would go to meet with God. Is it not amazing that now God tabernacles amongst men? He pitches his tent, as it were, amongst men that God may dwell amongst us. Heaven came down. And hopefully, glory does fill our soul at the thought of that. So let's talk about the whole implications of where we are going in terms of John chapter 1. And in in particular, I'm thinking about that interchange that's going to take place with Nathaniel. Now, if I were to focus on two words this morning, it would be the difference between place and person. It's my contention that most Christians, when they think about heaven, they think about place rather than thinking about person. And so I'm trying to to draw our attention more on the person side. So look with me at John chapter 1 and, and go back to verse 45 for a minute and look at Philip going to Nathaniel and look at this interchange between Jesus and Nathaniel. John chapter 1, verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and the prophets, uh, who also wrote about him. Jesus uh, found the one Moses wrote about in the law and the prophets. And also, what is my text doing here? Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael replied, can anything good come out of Nazareth? What is he thinking about? Place. Place. 
He's locked on place. He can't get past the fact that Jesus is a Nazarene. And to him, anybody who comes from that place can't be the right person, right? Now, here's the way the conversation then goes. He sees him, Jesus sees him coming in verse 47. He says, look, a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. I love that. Because Nathaniel said, how do you know me? I'd have said, who are you talking to? <laughs> I just can't believe this. And Jesus said, uh, before, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, I have to admit, I had not, I had not really thought about the way in which Nathaniel was focused on place. And when Jesus says, when, when you were there under that tree, I saw you, we would call that, theologically speaking, Jesus referring to the doctrine of his omnipresence, right? Isn't that interesting? Here is Nathaniel trying to, trying to somehow get Jesus locked into this little place called Nazareth, and Jesus is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Why would you think of him only in terms of Nazareth if he's everywhere? And what Jesus is saying to him is, you were out of sight. You were out of sight under that fig tree. But I was there and I saw you there and I saw what you were doing. And all of a sudden, Nathaniel's gears get to turn and he says, whoo, this is bigger than I thought. He says, you really are the Messiah in effect. You really are the king of Israel. Now, this is where it gets really interesting because Jesus now says this in verse 50. Because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. He continued, I tell all of you the solemn truth. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, in order to understand what Jesus is saying here, you have to understand the story that he's referring to. And that's the story of Jacob encountering God at a place that will then be called Bethel. The house of Bethel means house of God. Encountering him as he is fleeing from Israel and he is going to go to Padanaram ostensibly to get a wife, but in reality to get away from his brother so he doesn't kill him because he just ripped his brother off in terms of his birthright and his blessing. So he's hot on his way out of town. And you remember, he stops, he sleeps. Now, anybody who sleeps with their head on a rock, i got to tell you, that's no commercial for, for uh, any kind of hotel that I know of. Uh, come sleep with your head on a rock, and may, maybe that's related, I don't know. Although, with a guy as hard-headed as Jacob... That rock may have been soft, but let's go on. And by the way, Jacob, this is the early days of Jacob's life. This guy is no theological uh, Einstein. This guy, in fact, is a jerk. I would have, any day, I would have rather been with Esau than Jacob. This guy is a thief. He's a conniver. He's a cheat. There's just nothing good to say. If you think that God chose Jacob because he was a good guy, you're not reading the same text I am. He's a lousy guy, and here he is now fleeing. And so what I'm trying to say is, I wouldn't think that his words at this early stage of his life 
are that pious. And they're not. It's not until he's 130 years old, standing before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, well, how's it going, man? My translation. And he says, it's been long and hard. You know why? Because all of his life, Jacob has been fighting God, trying to cheat his way into God's blessings. And so if he was that way at 130, I got to tell you, in these younger years, he is no prize. But here's what happens. He has the dream and he sees this ladder and the angels ascending and descending. And in verse 16 of Genesis 28, he says this. Surely the Lord is in this place. But I did not realize it. He was afraid and he said, what an awesome place this is. This is nothing else than the house of God. Now, why did God do that? Well, now, first of all, let me, let me see if we can get this picture in our mind. So here's this picture, this heavenly image, and here's this ladder, and these angels coming down, up and down. He doesn't seem to notice as much what's on the top of the ladder. He doesn't even pay attention to what's on the ladder, the angels. He's looking at where the ladder's sitting. Now, that's not a bad message for Jacob where he, where he's presently at. Because he's getting out of Dodge, and in my opinion, he would never come back if he hadn't had this dream. What he realizes is, this is the place of mediation. This is the place where men find an access point, a way of relating with God. Sort of like an early tabernacle, as it were. So he says, wow, look at this. This place where that ladder is, this is a holy place. I better come back here. If this is where God has somehow chosen to communicate and to relate with men, I better get myself back here someday. But lest you think that he's too pious, he then goes on to say, If God takes care of me, if he makes me rich and famous and everything goes well, and if I get back, then I will do what? I'll give God 10% of the action. My back. Who wouldn't do that, folks? I mean, we give the government a whole lot more of the action than that, and they're not doing so well for us. But God, if he makes us rich and famous, he says, I'll give him 10%. I never have found a text where God says to him, uh, Jacob, about that 10%, I never see it. But there he is. He's thinking in terms of a place. Now, Here's what Jesus does. When he comes to this text in verse 51 of of, uh, John, chapter 1, he's picking up on that story. But you see, Jacob was saying, wow, this is an incredible place. And if he's thinking of any person, it's himself, not God. Is that not right? It's the place. Now, that's important, but it's not all important. Now, when you come to Nathaniel, he's been thinking about place too. And he's saying, well, Nazareth, I mean, who comes from that place? Nobody important. Then our Lord reveals to him, he's actually omnipresent, so place is not very relevant anymore. And then he says, citing from this, you'll see in time to come greater things. You'll see the heavens open and angels ascending and descending upon... Person. 
See, it's now not where that ladder is placed. It's who the ladder is. That's Jesus. And what he's saying is, Jacob didn't really have it right. And frankly, Nathaniel, you were kind of off the toolies as well. You were only thinking about place. What you ought to be thinking about is person. I am the ladder. I am the one who is omnipresent. I am the one who is the mediation point between men and God. So quit thinking about the land and start thinking about the ladder. Quit thinking about the place and start thinking about the person. Now watch that come to full bloom in chapter 4. Jesus with the woman at the well. You remember in John chapter 4, he uh, meets the woman and he, and he asks in Samaria, and he asks for a drink of water. And there's this conversation, and then Jesus said to her, go call your husband. She said, well, I'm not currently married at the moment. Jesus said, well, technically speaking, that's true. Actually, you've had five men in your past. I don't know whether that means they were husbands or not. It doesn't really matter at this stage. And the man you are presently with... That guy we know she's not married to because she just said she's not married. But you have number six going at this point, and that's when she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now, if we usually think that she's trying to avoid the point, and she's saying, well, let's get him off on something. Let's not get out, get out of my moral life, and let's get into something abstract. I don't think that's true at all. I think that she, like Nathaniel, has come to the realization, who we, this person is significantly greater than I thought. This man knows everything. If he knows everything, I'm going to ask him the most hotly debated question between Samaritans and Jews that there is. And that is, where is the place, place, where men must worship God, right? And she's thinking in terms of her categories here on Mount Moriah, as it were, in Jerusalem, where the temple uh, uh, is, or Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans thought you would go if you wanted to worship God. So she's thinking of this place or that place. And to her, if Jesus will answer that question, then she'll figure out whether she's on the right track or not. And Jesus basically says to her, it's no longer a matter of place. And and remember now, we've just had this interchange with Nathaniel in chapter 1. And now he says to her, there's going to come a time when place is really irrelevant And you don't worry about whether it's on this mountain or that mountain. What you do is you worry about whether it's in spirit and truth. And she says, whoa, ooh. Well, I know Messiah's coming. Uh, That could be the person, all right. Who is he? I, the one who am speaking to you, am he. Or probably more accurately, I am All of a sudden, this woman's down a whole new path because it's really not about place. It's about person. Now, let me just take a quick aside here 
and go to uh, Luke chapter 16 in your mind. And I'll tell you why I'm not going to go there for very long. Many people, if they want to talk about heaven and what Jesus says about heaven, they would go here. I would say there are several reasons not to do that. Number one, in my mind, it's undoubtedly speaking of the intermediate state. That is, where do people go when they die? Not their ultimate state. And so you're really not talking about, I think, the ultimate of heaven. The other part is this. Whatever Jesus is saying there, he is saying more about the rich man and hell than he is about heaven. Would you not agree? There's not a whole lot of description about all the bliss and whatever the Lazarus has got. What you see is all the agony the rich man has got. And so the real question is, how did I get here? And then he's saying, how do I keep other people from getting here? You don't get there by being rich. And Pharisees really led people to that conclusion, that that was a sign somehow of spirituality. So I'm passing by that one simply because it doesn't appear to me to be the key text. The key text is John chapter 14, that text that my brother agonized about. Many people have read it and thought pleasant, happy thoughts about it, and, and no doubt they should. I almost managed this morning, not quite, I almost managed, I actually had the CD on my desk to bring with me and I forgot it. And that is the, the CD where my grandmother at a hundred plus reads this text and it's from her funeral. One of my uh, uh, nieces or nephews videotaped my grandmother uh, after she had moved into my folks house somewhere after 101 and she, this was her favorite passage and she read that text, and I used it as the text which she had specified, I might add, for her funeral. It is a great text. Do not let your hearts be distressed. You believe in God, believe also in me. There are many dwelling places in my Father's house. Otherwise, I would have told you, because I'm going away to make a place, make ready a place for you, And if I go and make ready a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with me so that where I am, you may be too. Here's my problems with this passage. Is heaven really just a house? Is it really just a mansion? Or to put it in different terms, is this just a glorified version of HGTV? (laughs) We're just looking at a great house. Somehow that just doesn't grab me when you think about it. And my other problem kind of follows on the heels. If God could call all of this universe into existence in six days, how long does it take him to build an apartment complex? Wouldn't you agree? I mean, my goodness. You think that that it's taken him all this much time because he's, he's still... I know Jesus is a carpenter, folks. I know he was a carpenter. But he's not building that place with one man like Noah building the ark. How come it takes so much time to do that? And I guess I would have to say, here are the disciples. He's just told them, one of you is going to betray me and I'm going to die. And then he says to them, I'm going away and you can't go with me. These disciples are distressed. Somehow, I just can't get it. I can't put my arms around it either that Jesus is saying, there's this great house. There's this really cool apartment. 
And, I, and, and in fact, there are a bunch of them. And each one of you guys gets one of those. Does, does that really stir your soul? At the worst moment in the disciples' lives so far, does that really give you something to hang on to? To me, I, it just, I just find myself saying, mm, I don't know. So, here's, the, uh, here's my proposed solution. One, it is very clear in this context the disciples don't have a clue what Jesus is saying. Would you agree with me on that? I mean, yeah, somebody's going to betray him and they're arguing about who it is, but, but that argument quickly it, it comes down to who's the greatest in the kingdom, so they don't even stay with it very long. Judas gets the point and he's out of there because he knows if he doesn't betray Jesus now, he's never coming back. And if he comes back and Peter figures out it's him, Peter will kill him. I have no doubt about that in my mind. So it seems to me that you have to say, as Jesus said to them in John 16, 12, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. They are going to understand later, after his death and resurrection, after the Spirit comes upon him, all of a sudden there's going to be those aha moments and they can say, man, why did I not see that then? At this stage, what Jesus is saying to them makes no sense. Really. What does it mean when he says, my Father's house? I think that's the key. When he says, in my Father's house, house or many mansions. I think that's the key. And so we would have to go back. I think the Old Testament text, probably this comes, by the way, many times. It isn't called my father's house. It's called the house of the Lord in the Psalms over and over again. But get this one. Psalm 27, 4. I have asked the Lord for one thing. This is what I desire. I want to live in the Lord's house all the days of my life so I can gaze at the splendor of the Lord and contemplate in his temple. Now, think about that from the standpoint of an Old Testament saint. We talked last week about tabernacle and the temple and all the glory. Think about the fact that an Israelite didn't go to church every Sunday. An Israelite came at least three times a year. And that was a very special time. And when they came and they offered their sacrifices, there would be this festive meal that they could be a part of and they would celebrate. And in the Psalms of Ascent, when the psalmist was talking about or when they were singing and praising as they're going up to be at the temple, they would speak of it in terms of yearning. This is where they want to be. And they would be there. They wouldn't spend the night. There weren't rooms there. There were not rooms available in the temple to spend the night. There was no room in the inn, folks. There was no room in the temple. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. But there was a great sense of anticipation. And the psalmist and the worshipers, the true worshipers of God said, This is God's dwelling place. Oh, that I could spend all of my life here. Remember one of them said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. Nothing was greater to an Old Testament saint than to dwell in the house of God, Psalm 23, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Nothing could be more delightful than dwelling in God's place forever. Now, drop back. How is the expression, my father's house, used in the New Testament? Not very often. 
Luke chapter 2, verse 29. Jesus, remember, got at 12 years of age, got displaced from his parents. They come back to Jerusalem. Lo and behold, he's there interchanging with all the, 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 the sharp intellectuals about the kingdom. And when his parents say to him, son, son, why have you done this? What did he say? I must be in my father's house. His father's house is the temple. John chapter 2, verse 16. Jesus cleanses the temple. This is after the, the creating the wine out of the water at the, at the wedding in Cana. He goes and cleanses the temple. And uh, they, uh, they say, in effect, uh, you know, they're going to say, what are you doing? But he says, do not make my father's house a marketplace. So when we come to John 14, verse 2, and he says, in my father's house are many dwelling places, what would you think he's talking about? I would think he's talking about the temple, wouldn't you? And remember in John chapter 2, he makes it clear that he's speaking of himself as the temple. John chapter 1 he who tabernacled amongst us. Tabernacle in chapter 1, temple in chapter 2. So when we get to chapter 14, I would think he's talking about the temple. Now, get this. Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 4 through 9. Interesting. Can one spend the night in the house of God? Not legitimately. Verse 4, Nehemiah 13, verse 4. But prior to this time, Eliashib the priest, a relative of Tobiah, he's a bad boy, had been appointed over the storerooms of the temple of our God. Now, when you think about all of the things that needed to take place in the temple, it really took a lot of storage. By the way, what a wonderful building we have. The one deficiency is not nearly enough storage, right? Boy, they needed storage for all the things that took place. So there were these storerooms. He made for himself a large storeroom where previously they had been keeping the grain offering, the incense and the vessels, along with the tithes of grain, the new wine and the olive oil, as commanded for the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the offerings for the priests. During all this time, I was not in Jerusalem. <laughs> Don't blame me. <laughs> I didn't give him the room. And uh, for in the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes of Babylon, I had gone back to the king. Sometime, after some time, I had been requested, uh, I had requested to leave the king, and I returned to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by supplying him with a storeroom in the courts of the temple of God. And I was very upset. And I threw all of Tobiah's household. Boy, you talk about getting tossed out of your place. You know, in this, what, sometimes what happens, you just throw all your stuff out there in the street. He's getting moved out, folks. I threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the storeroom, and then I gave instructions that the storeroom should be purified, and I brought back the equipment of the temple of God, along with the grain offerings and the incense. So up to this point in time, with the real temple... Nobody had a right to stay there. And yet, in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, they said, Oh, my glory would be that I could dwell forever in the house of the Lord, in the temple. If I could just be there forever. You aren't going to be there in that temple. <laughs> You're going to get tossed out. And there weren't that many rooms. 
So when Jesus says then, in my father's house, I take it he's saying, in that temple that the father has, there will be many places to dwell. And folks, you not only get to spend the night, you get to spend all of eternity. It's, it's like if you could take all of those hopes and aspirations of those Old Testament saints that talked about dwelling in the house of the Lord forever, and all of a sudden Jesus is saying, it's going to happen. In this dwelling place that God is preparing, men will live in his presence forever. So when you look at that text in Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 through 50. You see, when our Lord Jesus is crucified, the veil is, is torn from top to bottom, which meant now that forbidden access that was true in Old Testament times has been set aside and men have direct access into the presence of God. And in the context of what Jesus is saying, not only can they come into the Holy of Holies, they've got a room there. Is that not right? They've got a place there to stay forever. So in Hebrews chapter 10, in verses 19 through 22, he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the fresh and living way that he inaugurated for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Then he talks about coming in and entering into all that God has for us. It fits Revelation 21, 22. Because in Revelation 21 and 22, it says there is no temple. Why? Because God himself and the Lord Jesus are the temple. So why would you talk about heaven being a place with all these rooms <laughs> and this mansion with all these rooms if in reality there isn't a building in the sense that we like to think about it with all these apartments? It seems to me that what it's saying is when we get to heaven, we will enter into the most intimate fellowship with God that there is. And we've already seen the, the introduction to that by the veil being rent, by us having access through our Lord Jesus into the Holy of Holies. And we will, in all eternity and for all eternity, we will enter in and we will dwell in God himself. I would say... That's a whole lot more person than it is place, right? To me, at least. Take a look at uh, John 14 through 16 in your minds. We can't go to all those texts. But think about the context where Jesus is talking about how things will be. What does Jesus say in the first verses of John chapter 15? Abide in me. After he has just said, in my father's house, in the temple, as it were, this heavenly, eternal temple, in him, there are many places to dwell. And how do we start? Jesus says, you start by abiding in me. That's what it's about. It's about us entering into Christ and all that he has and having our being and our existence in him, having our joy in him. Will Aunt Tilda be there? Yep. But that is not my life and my eternal hope. 
Hi, Tilda. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, we'll wave. Jesus says, you know, that there isn't marriage in heaven like there is today. If you're thinking about heaven in the sense that you're going to have a room for two, I don't think so. I don't think so. They'll be there. We'll have fellowship with our fellow believers. It's going to be different. That's why I think when we look at Ephesians chapter 1 and you find all of the great blessings that are in store for us, they are described really in terms of two words or by two words. And those two words are in Him. Heaven is more a person than it is a place. I'm getting excited and time's running short, so let me move on. When you look in the New Testament, you discover that something is happening now. If in heaven, what's going to happen is we will have our dwelling in God, and that will be our great joy and satisfaction. On earth, God has his dwelling in us. Is that not an amazing thought? God has his dwelling in us. So there's a sense that our Lord Jesus, as God fully dwelt in human flesh, now God is dwelling in his church and in saints individually. So we see, for instance, uh, this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is talking about all the kinds of terrible things that were going on morally uh, in in, uh, Corinth and about uh, prostitution in particular. And he says in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 6, Flee sexual immorality, for every sin a person commits is outside the body. But the immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? If we are temples today, if we are the dwelling place of God That has incredible implications for what we do and what we think, does it not? But not only is that true on the individual level, it's true on the corporate level. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21. In him the whole building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Folks, that is not in the sweet by and by. That is here and now. The sweet by and by is when we dwell in him in in a level of intimacy that we have not yet known or experienced in this life. But he dwells in us now. So what I want to, I guess, leave you with is just this. Are we not Jacob-like When we think about heaven, are we not really Jacob-like? Do we not think more of the place than the person? Do we not think more about the blessings than the blessor? Would we, come on folks, when we get to heaven in the way many of us are thinking and acting, you know what the first thing we would do is? We would go to the employment office and ask for a job on the street repair department. Think about that for a minute. Streets of gold. Come on, guys! <laughs> Get with me! We, we'd work at the street department, folks, and we'd be filling our pockets. 
We're so fixed on those streets of gold. We're so fixed on those mansions of glory that we've somehow lost sight of the fact that heaven is dwelling in God. And finding His presence, the joy and the satisfaction which the Old Testament saints longed for and which New Testament saints now have the words of our Lord Jesus Himself saying, it's coming. There won't be a physical temple. There doesn't need to be a physical temple because our dwelling place is God. Now here's the thing that strikes me. When you think about heaven we tend to think about what it's not. We think about what it is, gold and all that stuff. We also think in terms of what it's not. It's not death, good. It's not sorrow. It's not suffering, no pain, whatever. And all of that is good. But, you know, here's the interesting thing. God has in the present time chosen to dwell amongst us in the midst of all of those things. It's Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. This present world is suffering and groaning, and we're in this this kind of angst where where we're waiting for the freedom from all those things. But you know what the Bible teaches? The Bible teaches us that in the midst of all of that, we can grow in in a depth of understanding and love for Him. As the psalmist in Psalm 73 said, I'm watching all these guys prosper, and I'm doing badly, and I'm thinking, where are you, God? And then he says, wow... I forgot, you're always with me, and I will always be with you. And you notice he's not really grumbling and saying, man, I wish we'd get this over with and get on to that, although it's better. He's saying, I have entered into that relationship with God through Christ, where in the midst of these terrible things, I find God is nearer to me than ever. That's why Paul says that I can enter into the fellowship of his sufferings. That's why Peter can say, if you think you've got it bad, rejoice! So that there is a sense in which there is heaven on earth. Not heaven in the sense of streets of gold. Not heaven in the sense of no sickness. Heaven in the sense that when we enter into suffering... We know our Lord entered into suffering and we know Him better because of the affliction we have now. So my big message is this. We need to stop thinking about place, buildings, streets, and making that our focus. It's there. And we need to think about heaven as the place where we will dwell forever with God. And in that sense, folks, when we gather on Sunday mornings, it is a taste of heaven, or it should be. It ought to be a taste of heaven, and we ought to be saying to ourselves, this is what it's really meant to be for now. And I look forward to that time when we'll do it without the distractions and all of the difficulties that we face. But for now, God dwells in us. For all eternity, we dwell in him. I hope, I hope that everyone here has known the Lord Jesus, has come to trust in him, because he's the way. He's the way to heaven. As Jesus says, a few more verses down in 14, no man cometh unto the Father, but through me. You want the keys to the house? The big house. <laughs> the really big house. It's Jesus. You have to acknowledge you'll never get there on your own. It's only through him and his death 
in the sinner's place that you could be saved. Father, thank you for this this great book of John. And thank you for the reality that heaven is going to be the place where we know you in great intimacy. Thank you, too, that you are dwelling in us now through your spirit. May we find that a delight and a privilege and a joy. In Jesus' name, amen.